0: Love you, and in Jesus' name pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in the book of Amos, Amos chapter number four, and of course on Wednesday nights we are making our way through the book of Amos. We are in a chapter by chapter uh, study, taking one chapter a night, and tonight we find ourselves in the second of three sermons in uh, chapter, uh, if you remember last week I had brought up to you that in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we've got three different sermons that Amos preaches towards the northern kingdom of Israel. And all three sermons, if you remember, begin with this phrase, hear this word. If you notice there in Amos chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible says, hear this word. If you just flip back real quickly to Amos chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, hear this word. And if you look at Amos chapter 5, he says, hear this word. So we've got these three sermons in these three chapters, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. And tonight we are in the second of this little mini series that Amos is preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. And tonight we're looking at a chapter that has 13 verses, not very long. Uh, However, the chapter uh, can be structured or divided into four different sections. And that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm just going to Walk you through this chapter and give you the four different sections, and I'll give you uh, the titles that I've given to the four sections in these chapters. And the titles are taken from the text itself. And sometimes, every once in a while, you'll be reading through the Bible, and there'll be a little phrase that just kind of pops out at you. And a lot of times, when that happens for me, I end up preaching an entire sermon, maybe just from that phrase or the uh, the inspiration of that phrase. In this chapter, there are several of those types of phrases, and I'll point them out to you. And each one of them serves as a heading for each section of this chapter. So if you're taking notes tonight, and I always encourage you to take notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. And I want you to notice that the first section that we can divide this chapter into is verses 1 through 3, and if you're looking for a heading or if you'd like to outline it, the first section heading can be titled kine of Bashan, ye kine of Bashan. If you notice there in Amos chapter 4 and verse 1, Amos says, hear this word, ye kine of Bashan. The word kine is a older word, maybe an archaic word, which is not really used in our modern vernacular today. It is the plural form of, uh, of, of cow, of saying the word cow. We, you and I would would look at a cow singularly and say, there's a cow. And then we might say, you know, there's cows. I don't know, there's cattle. The word kind is just a plural way of speaking of uh, cows. And here uh, we see Amos calling the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, the people are being called by Amos as though they are cattle. He is calling them kind. He also calls them a cow. Notice there again, verse 1. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you, that he will take you away with hooks and fish hooks, and ye shall go out at the breaches. Notice this little phrase, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into The palace saith the Lord. So I want you to notice that he begins this sermon by calling the people cows, saying you are kind. He says you are like a cow. Now as you would imagine, this is not a term of flattery. This is not something that you call someone and they think you are giving them a compliment. He is really insulting them. But I want you to understand that to them, this would resonate a little bit. Because not only does he begin by calling the people, he he calls the people kine and cows, but he is calling the people cows who live in an area known for producing fat cattle. And here's what I want you to understand, that the people that Amos is speaking to live in an area that is known for producing fat cattle. Look at Amos chapter 4 and verse 1 again. He says, hear this word, Ye kind of Bashan, ye kind of Bashan. That word Bashan or that location Bashan might sound a little familiar to you because it's in a very well-known passage of Scripture, a very well-known prophetic passage of Scripture. Keep your place there in Amos, that's our text for tonight, and go with me if you would to the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you are more than likely fall in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, we have a very famous prophecy of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not preaching about that or making any comments about that. I just wanted to point out that in that prophecy, the Bible says in Psalm 22 and verse 12, this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ of His death. This is an illustration, but He says, Many bulls, which of course this is referring to cattle, Many bulls have compassed me. And then notice what the psalmist says. He says, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. And Bashan is a location that is known for producing kine, cattle, bulls. Here we are told that the strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. Let me give you another example. Go to Ezekiel 39 if you would. Ezekiel 39, if you're there there in Psalms, you'll go past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, the last of those major prophets, Ezekiel 39 and verse 18. Ezekiel 39, 18, notice what the Bible says. Here the prophet says, ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, which is again referring to bulls or cattle. Notice what he says, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So I want you to notice that this location, Bashan, is known for producing fat fatlings, fat cows, uh, strong bulls, healthy, big, fat bulls. And we're talking about a bull and a cow, and, and, we're, and we're talking about a, the, cow, the kind of cow we want to see. What kind of cow do you want to see? You want to see a fat cow. Um, you don't want a, a skinny cow like in, the, uh, in the, the, the dream that Pharaoh had. You want to see the strong uh, cattle. And this area is known for producing fat cattle, And Amos is being a little bit sarcastic. We'll see here that God is being sarcastic in this chapter a little bit. And he's talking to people who are known for raising cattle, producing cattle. They're known for having fat cattle, fatlings of Bashan, uh, bulls, strong bulls of Bashan. So he refers to them as kind and and as cows. And really, he's referring to them as fat cows. And... You know, I only bring that up to say this, if you're ever offended by my preaching, at least I've never called you a fat cow, (laughs) at least not to your face. And um, this is how Amos begins his sermon by referring to these people as fat cows. Go to Amos chapter 4. Now, of course, in the ancient world and even in our world today, if you have fat cattle, it's, you're probably rich. You have to be pretty wealthy to, to have cattle even in our world today. And in the ancient world, for sure, this is how they measured wealth. So he's calling them this because of the fact that they're rich. They're rich from this cattle that they have. They're known for producing these, uh, these fatlings of Bashan, these strong bulls of Bashan, these bullocks. And they are rich as a result. And really what... Amos is doing because if you remember the theme of the book of Amos is that it matters how we treat people and the theme of Amos is Amos is really preaching a lot of his preaching is geared towards rich prosperous people that are being cruel and oppressing the poor and they're becoming rich as a result of it and Amos is saying you're rich because of this cattle that you have but he says really The joke's on you because when God looks at you, he sees a fat cow. He sees a heifer. He sees kine. He sees this cattle. Notice there in verse 1, the people had grown fat like their cattle in their prosperity. Why did they grow fat? They gained their wealth and affluence by oppressing others. Look look at verse 1 again. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan. Ye are in the mountains of Samaria. Notice what he says. Which oppress the poor, which crush the needy. These people had not gotten their wealth uh, through honest means. They've not gotten their wealth by simply working hard. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy if you're honest and you have integrity and you work hard. But these people had oppressed the poor. They had crushed the needy. They gained their wealth and affluence by oppressing others. And they use their wealth and affluence to pursue sinful pleasures. Notice again, verse 1. And so far, we've only looked at verse 1. I promise we're going to get through the whole chapter, but there's a lot just in this one verse. Hear this word, ye kind of patient that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor and crush the needy. Notice what he says. He says about these rich people. He says, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. He said, these people have gotten fat They've, gone, uh, they, uh, they, they've grown fat in their prosperity. They've gained their wealth through the aff- an affluence by oppressing others. They oppress the poor. They crush the needy. And they use their wealth and affluence to pursue simple pleasures, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. And look, people try to act like the Bible's archaic or it's out of date, but the Bible is just as relevant today as it is any other day. Because in the United States of America today, you know what we have? We have a bunch of fat cows, a bunch of prosperous people, and there are bars all over the city tonight where people are saying these words, bring and let us drink. I mean, isn't that what people are saying at bars tonight? Isn't that what people are saying at casinos tonight? Aren't they saying bring and let us drink? are they saying bring us another drink? Bring us another drink. And Amos says these rich prosperous people are using the prosperity that God gave them to say, bring and let us drink. Bring us another drink. Let me tell you something, especially you young people, listen up. Never be in a place where people are saying, bring us another drink. Unless you want God to look down at you and look at you as a fat cow, a kine and a heifer. The Old Testament prophets would often use these illustrations to illustrate and to represent a backslidden believer. If you're there in Amos, if you go to the book of Hosea real quickly, let me give you an example of that. If you go backwards, you've got the book of Joel and then the book of Hosea. Notice what Hosea says to the children of Israel. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 16. Hosea 4.16, for Israel, I love the, the, the picture that he paints here. He says, for Israel slideth back. You ever heard of this phrase, backslidden? This is where we get the phrase from. Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Say, what's a heifer? It's a cow. What's kind? It's a cow. The picture here is a big fat cow trying to make its way up a hill, and it's sliding back. And that's what Hosea is saying about the people of God, and that's what preachers today say about the people of God today, when you backslide, when you are doing less for God today than you were doing yesterday, when you are doing worse for God today than you were doing yesterday, you are like a backslidden heifer, a cow trying to make itself way up a hill, but it's so heavy with its own fat that it slides back. Let me tell you something. Oftentimes, Prosperity is the worst thing that could happen to a Christian. They get so fat with themselves, they can no longer walk with God. They're like a backslidden heifer, backsliding in their own weight in prosperity. Go back to Amos chapter 4. Look at verse 2. Notice what the prophet says. He says, He says, And here's what he's saying, and we're going to get to it. It's going to become clear here as we continue in this chapter. God is reminding them that he is the one that gave them the land that allows them to have the cattle. He's the one that gave them the cattle. He's the one that gave them the health. He's the one that gave them prosperity. And they have now taken this prosperity upon themselves. And like their cattle is fat, they have become fat in their own prosperity. They are like a backslidden heifer. And God says, okay, you want to act like a cow? You want to be like a cow? That's fine. Then He says, the people are going to be led away like cattle. Notice verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that He will take you away with hooks. And your posterity, this is the descendants of the, of the persons, he says, with fish hooks. And history books tell us that the Assyrian nation was known for this, that they would take captives and they would lead them captive, these prisoners of war, and they would use these hooks that they would put into their cheeks and into their noses and use them to lead them away. And this is a, 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 a prophecy that Amos is telling them, the Assyrian army will come and will take you away with hooks. They're going to take you away with fish hooks. Look at verse 3. And you shall go out at the breaches. If you remember in the ancient world, the ancient world, unlike our world, because we uh, now have a lot of technology, these things don't matter anymore. But in the ancient world, they did not have helicopters. They did not have uh, airplanes. They did not have uh, missiles like we have today. And in the ancient world, when a city was strong and prosperous, the way you knew that was by the massiveness of their walls. They would build walls around the city, and the bigger the wall, the stronger the wall, the thicker the wall, the more prosperous, the more strong that city was. If you remember, the city of Jericho was a very prosperous city, and God brought down those walls for the children of Israel. Here, they have these walls that they've used as security. But God says that ye shall go out at the breaches. He says, by the time the Assyrian military is done, there are going to be so many holes, so many gaping holes in these walls that you trust in, he said, you're going to actually be led. They're not even going to take you to a gate. They're just going to lead you out the holes and the breaches like cattle, every cow at that which is before her, and ye he shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. So I hope you notice or understand why this first section, verses 1, 2, and 3, can be can be titled, Ye Kind of Bashan, because... God is telling these people, Amos is calling them kine and cows because the kine and the cows that they own are what they are putting their trust in and their faith in and what they are allowing to move them away and draw them away from God. And God says, if you're going to allow this cattle to draw you away from me, then that's fine. Then you will be led out like cattle by the Assyrian government, by the Assyrian nation. Look at Amos chapter 4. In verses 4 and 5, we find the second section of this chapter. And the second section can be titled this, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. We already saw the prophet Amos being pretty sarcastic by calling the people kine and cows. And here we see him again being sarcastic, saying, He's saying, if you remember, if you look at the last uh, words of verse number three there, Amos chapter four and verse three, it says, saith the Lord. That phrase is repeated over and over through this chapter. You'll notice in the book of Amos that he uses repetition a lot, repetition to reinforce what he's saying. These are the words of God. This is God speaking through the prophet Amos. And here's what God says in verse four. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal multiply transgressions. God is inviting them to sin. You say, why is God doing that? You're going to see here in a minute why he points out these two cities, but I want you to notice that God is being sarcastic here. Go to Revelation just real quickly. Keep your place in Amos and go to Revelation. Oftentimes, God uses sarcasm. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that. There's a place in the Bible where he he tells people that want to say that they are gods. He says, okay, I'll call you a God, but you're going to die like a man. And people, sometimes they get confused. They're like, well, God is calling them a God here. He's like, he tells them, yeah, I'll call you a God, lowercase g, right before you die like a man. God's obviously being sarcastic here. Here's another example, Revelation 22. Notice verse 11. He says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. You see these types of statements that God makes, Because you would say, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. You say, why would God say that? You know why God says that? Because God's not a Calvinist. God's not going to make you get cleaned up. If you want to live an unjustly life and you want to live in filth, God says, be filth. Be filth still. And here in Amos, he tells the children of Israel, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. He points out these two cities, Bethel and Gilgal. Now, these were cities that had a pretty good history. The past, there was a past of these histories, of these cities that had a good history for both Bethel and Gilgal. Let's just look at them real quickly. Go to Genesis, 29, 28, Genesis 28. Let's look at the city Bethel. Bethel is where, we'll look at it here in a minute, Genesis 28. Jacob made a covenant with God and he called it the house of God. Bethel is actually known as the house of God. If you remember, it's where Jacob went and slept in a cave and he had a dream and he saw a ladder And the ladder led to heaven, and angels were ascending and descending on that ladder. And he said, this must be the house of God. Genesis 28, 19, the Bible says, And he, Jacob, called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. I want you to to understand why it is that Amos is bringing up this city. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. Why does he say that? It's not just a random word. It's not just a random thing he's bringing up. He brings it up for a reason. Why? Because every person in the nation of Israel, Bethel is a city on the northern part of the nation of Israel, not in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's one of the cities that is the most southern city in the northern kingdom, if that makes sense. And Bethel is known for this, what we're reading right now, Genesis 28, 20. When Jacob, you say, who's Jacob? Remember, he gets renamed Israel. He ends up having 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel, who end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel becomes the 10 tribes of Israel, the vast majority of Israel. Amos says to those northern tribes, come to Bethel and transgress. When he says Bethel, they would think of, Genesis 28, 20, the story, and Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, I will, and will, notice what Jacob says, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. The, the, the covenant that Jacob made with God was this. God, if you take care of me, if you give me bread to eat and you give me raiment, he said, I, I, I will serve you, then shall the Lord be my God. Notice verse 22. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. That's what Bethel's known for, the house of God. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. This is Jacob making a promise to God to tithe. By the way, this is before Moses, for you scholars out there, who like to say, well, the law, tithing wasn't until the law. Okay, well, you obviously never read Genesis 28. I will surely give thee the... ten. Now, here, I want you to understand. You say, well, well, is Jacob saying that he'll serve God if God prospers him? Here's what Jacob says. I will tithe 10% of everything you prosper me. If you give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, then shalt thou the Lord be my God, and I will surely give thee the tenth, give the tenth unto thee. Later on, God actually comes to Jacob when Jacob is now a rich man, about 20 years after this, and God comes to Jacob and says, I am the God of Bethel. And God is saying, Remember what you said? If I take care of you and prosper you, you tithe 10%. Well it's time to pay up, buddy. I'm the God of Bethel. Jacob, Israel, made a covenant with God that said, God, when you prosper me, I'll acknowledge you. I'll make sure that everyone knows that I understand that this prosperity, this wealth, this bread, this raiment comes from you. And I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Now we have Amos. Go back to Amos chapter 4 speaking to a very prosperous descendancy of Jacob. Speaking to the descendants of Israel. And here's what he says. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions and bring your sacrifice every morning. Don't miss it. And your tithes. And your tithes after three years. Why does he bring up Bethel? He's reminding them. He's reminding them, hey, remember that the deal was this. If I blessed you, you would acknowledge me, but I blessed you and you've forgotten about me. He said, you're supposed to come back to Bethel and tithe, Jacob. You're supposed to come back and acknowledge the prosperity that I've given you. He says, well, why don't you come to Bethel and transgress? Then he brings up Gilgal. Go to Joshua real quickly, Joshua chapter 5. If you're there in Genesis, you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. If you're familiar with the book of Joshua, the name Gilgal should pop out to you because Gilgal basically served as the headquarters for Joshua and for the nation of Israel as they entered into the Promised Land during that military campaign that Joshua led them to conquer the land. Not Jerusalem and not any other place. It was Gilgal where they headquartered. Gilgal is what they called home. Gilgal is where they always came back to. Next time you read through the book of Joshua, you ought to make a note of Gilgal and the uh, emphasis on Gilgal. Jo- Joshua 5 in verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. What is this a reference to? If you remember, Joshua has brought the children of Israel. They've crossed the Jordan River, and he brought the children of Israel into the Promised Land. But when they get there, Joshua decides that they need to circumcise the people of Israel. Why? Because they have not circumcised them by the way. What does that mean? During the wilderness wanderings, for the last 40 years, as they were wandering the wilderness, they were not practicing circumcision. So when they come into the Promised Land, Joshua decides, the Bible says, them, Joshua, circumcised, for they were circumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. Look at verse 8. And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. Gilgal becomes their headquarters, and Gilgal is where they pitched, where they had their tent, and Gilgal is where they circumcised the people. Not only did they circumcise after 40 years of not circumcising, it's also where they held the Passover after all the years of not keeping the Passover. Look at Joshua 5 and verse 10. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover. So Gilgal, if you would bring that up to Somebody from the nation of Israel, they would recognize that as, yes, that was pretty much the headquarters where Joshua left his camp. That's where the children of Israel were circumcised after 40 years in the wilderness, and that's where they first kept the Passover in the nation of Israel. What is the Passover known for? It is a sacrifice with no leaven. What does Amos say to them? Look at, go back to Amos chapter 4, and verse 5. In verse 4, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Verse 5, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. So why is he saying this? And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Why is God telling them to come to Gilgal? Why is he telling them to come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions? Why is he saying, don't forget to tithe when you come here? Why is he making these these points and why does it seem like God is being sarcastic? And here's the point that God is trying to make. You and I do not get to decide how we worship God. You and I need to make sure when we worship God, we worship God the way that God designed. Because... The truth is this, when it comes to Bethel and Gilgal, in the past they had good history, but currently they had a bad history. They had a bad state that they were in when Amos was preaching this. Let me just show that to you. Go to 1 Kings chapter 12. If you kept your place in Joshua, I'm not sure if you did, but if you kept your place in Joshua from Joshua, you have Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12. If you can find the one and two books, they're all clustered together. 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 1 Kings chapter 12. Now remember, Amos is preaching. Amos, if you remember, Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom of Israel that is preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. After King Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, had a split where Rehoboam ended up being the, the king of the southern kingdom of Israel and Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a split in the kingdom. And that's why when you read 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and Chronicles, you have oftentimes storylines that go back and forth between these two different lines of kings because some are from the southern kingdom of Israel, some are from the northern kingdom of Israel. Here in 1st Kings 12.28, we see a story of Jeroboam. Jeroboam who split the kingdom with Rehoboam. 1st Kings 12.28, notice what the Bible says, Whereupon the king, referring to Jeroboam, took counsel and made two, don't miss it, Look, the Bible is so consistent. He made two what? Calves. What's a calf? He made two calves of gold. And by the way, remember, Aaron made a calf of gold. These things are all consistent. He made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods. What is Jeroboam doing here? He doesn't want the people of his new kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, because where was the temple where they worshiped God? It was in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. He did not want his people to go down into the sun in the kingdom for the Passover or to worship at the temple because they might turn on him. He thinks they might not come home. They might not turn on him. So what does he do? He makes these two golden calves. He puts one at the southern tip of the northern kingdom, another at the northern king- tip of the northern kingdom, and he tells the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and he set the one in Bethel. And the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. So he says these golden calves, and he says, don't go down to the temple to worship God. Just worship right here. Worship these these golden calves. Do you understand why Amos is calling them cattle and kind? Not only do they have fat cattle, they've got a big old idol of a cattle. And God is telling them, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Here's the point. Look at verse 5. Last part of verse 5. And proclaim and publish the free offerings, for this liketh you. You see that phrase? This liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Here's what he's saying. This is what you like. This is what you want. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You and I do not get to decide how we want to worship God. But these people, God looks down and he says, I see your worship. I see you in Bethel worshiping. I see you in Gilgal worshiping. Bethel and Gilgal were cities that were pretty close to each other. If you remember Elisha, excuse me, Elijah, right before he uh, got taken up in a whirlwind, when Elisha was following him, he had that little tour of Israel. He went from Gilgal to Bethel. They're right by each other. And what God is saying... I see your worship. The problem with your worship is that this liketh you. He says, you like it. I don't like it. It makes you feel good. It doesn't make me feel good. And you know, I believe that God looks down at churches today, and he looks down at their little rock concerts, and he says, yeah, this liketh you your little 15-minute sermon with a corrupted Bible and your rock concert, and you call it church, this liketh you, you like it, I don't like it. Yeah. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression." You know what he's saying today? He's saying, go to Joel Osteen and transgress. Go to these, to Rick Warren and multiply transgression." This liketh you, this is worship you like, this is worship you want. He says, I don't like it. I'm not impressed with it. So we see the second section. It can be titled, Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgressions. Then I want you to notice the third section. The third section covers verses 6 through 11. If you're looking for a heading for the third section, you could call it this, Yet have ye not returned unto me. If you remember, Amos uses repetition a lot. Throughout the book of Amos, we've seen him in different chapters use repetition over and over again. This is a phrase that comes up several times in these few verses. Look at the last part of verse six. He says, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Look at verse eight. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Look at verse nine. Last part of verse nine. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Look at the last part of verse 10. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Look at the last part of verse 11. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. These statements, these five statements in verses 6 through 11, Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord, actually serve as an outline of this section. Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11 Every time that he says, yet ye have not returned unto me, it is the ending of a point. Amos is outlining this little sermon here, and I want you to notice what he is highlighting. The first thing in this third section is famine. Notice what he says in verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth. Doesn't that sound good, cleanness of teeth? Isn't that what we all want? Cleanness of teeth, like Joel Osteen, right? But I want you to notice that this is a negative thing. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth is a bad thing. Because how do you get your teeth dirty? By eating. Why do you have to floss at night? To get the food out of your teeth. In between your teeth. Here Amos is saying, put the floss away. You don't need to floss. I'm going to bring you famines, God says, and I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread. Notice the famine. He says, you're going to be in need of bread. You're not going to have the food in all your places. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He says, I'm going to cut the food. I'm going to bring famine. You're going to have cleanness of teeth. There'll be nothing between your teeth for you to floss out. You'll have want of bread. And then God says, but after I do this, I will still be saying, yet ye have not returned unto me. Then he says in verses 7 and 8, he talks about a drought. Notice what he says. Verse 7, And also, I have withholden the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. So one piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet ye have not returned unto me. He says, I'm going to bring famine, but you will not return unto me. I'm going to bring drought, but you will not return to me. Then in verse 9, he says, I'm going to bring crop failure. Look at verse 9. I've smitten you with the blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Look at verse 10. He says, I'm going to bring disease and death. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword, and I have taken you uh, away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camp to come up unto your nostrils, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Notice in verse 11, he says, I'm going to bring fire and judgment. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet were as firebrands. The word firebrand means a piece of burning wood. He said, ye were as firebrands. You were like a piece of burning wood plucked out of the burning, yet ye have not returned unto me. He said, what is he talking about? God is reminding them that he is the source of their wealth. God is reminding them, I mean, the perfect illustration is in verse 7. And I also have withholden the rain from you, and when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city, one piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. God is saying, do you understand that I'm the one who decides where the rain falls? You understand that I decide, I decide, God says, it's going to rain in this city. It's not going to rain in this city. This city is going to be withered. This city is going to have a famine. People from this city are going to run into this city. And God says, I'm the one that gave you the rain. I'm the one that gave you the bread. I'm the one that gave you the crops. I'm the one that gave you the safety and security. And then God says, I'm going to take it away. But here's the problem. When I take it away, you are so filled with pride. He says, yet you shall not return unto me. You say, how can this be? You know, just be a pastor for 12 years. You'll see how this can be. You know what my wife and I have seen over the last 12 years of ministry? I mean, you you want to know something you learn in over a decade of ministry? You know what we've seen at Verity Baptist Church over the last 12 years? We've seen people come into this church a mess. I mean, unemployed, no employment, not going anywhere in life, their marriage is falling apart, their children are falling apart, issues, problems, just out of control. And then they come here. And then they hear the word of God. And we preach sermons about working hard and being disciplined and getting out of debt and living a righteous life. And they get around other people that are serving God and following God. And you know what they do? They start a business. You know what they do? They get a promotion. You know what they do? They get a raise. You know what they do? They get some nice uh, furniture and they get a nice house and they move into a nice uh, little uh, neighborhood. And they start getting puffed up. And they start thinking like, well, look how well I'm doing. And they forget that it is God that decides where the rain is going to fall. You know, it's God who decides. If you say, well, I've got a successful business, that's because God decided it. I have a great career. That's because God is blessing you. I've got all these finances. That's because God has chosen to bless you and God can take it away. You know what we've seen over the years? We see those same people get backslidden. We see those same people leave. We see those same people, they're not right with God, they leave this church, and you know what happens? Their businesses fall apart. Their marriages fall apart. They they get fired. They lose their homes. Their lives become a mess. And and everybody's like, oh man, isn't that too too bad? And I'm thinking to myself, don't you think it's God? Don't you think it's possible that God has taken His blessing from you? But yet, have you not returned unto me that's what God says I just want to remind you before you get all puffed up in your prosperity that God can take it away like this God can take your health in a moment God can take your job in a moment if you're experiencing rain wherever you're having crops, you better thank God for it. You better not get proud about it. You better not think, well, look how great I am. Look how smart I am. Look, I decided to plant the vineyard right here, and this is over there's where the drought is. I chose the right place. No, God made it rain in the right place. God can take it away. I've seen ministries fall apart people start showing up and they start getting little nice offerings and they start thinking, well, look how good I'm doing. You're not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. Anything we do is by the grace of God. Right. Amen. And here God is saying, I will take it all away, all these things that have distracted you from me, I will take it all away, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Go back to Amos chapter 4 and look at verse 12. Verses 12 and 13, we find the final section in this chapter. The fourth section, the heading could be titled, and I think this is the best little phrase. When we talked about little phrases that pop out at you in the word of God, this is one of these phrases. In Amos chapter 4 and verse 12, Amos says, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, I want you to notice this little phrase. You ought to underline it in your Bible. You ought to highlight it in your Bible. He says, prepare to meet thy God. Those are some scary words. He says, I gave you the rain, I gave you the cattle, I gave you the riches, I gave you the wealth. I'm going to take it all away. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. This little section could just be titled, verses 12 and 13, prepare to meet thy God. Go to Hebrews just real quickly if you would, Hebrews chapter 9. Towards the end of the New Testament. We're almost done. You start at Revelation and go backwards. You have Jude, thirty-second and first John, second and 1 Peter, James and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Amos says, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. You know that there is a set day of judgment for all people? Everybody. Saved or unsaved. Every person who's ever lived has an appointment to meet their God, whether they acknowledge him as God or not, whether they believe in him or not. Amos, oh, excuse me, Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. You say, which judgment? It doesn't matter. Anybody who dies is going to a Judgment. Now the Bible teaches, and I'm not going to take the time to have you run through all the verses. You can study this out on your own. The Bible teaches that there are two judgments that, uh, that will be held for all mankind. One judgment is for unbelievers. It is called the great white throne judgment. And it is where they will be judged for their works before they get cast into hell. No one will be good enough to go to heaven based on their works. They will all be found wanting. You say, Well, praise the Lord, you and I aren't going to that judgment. Well, there's a judgment for you and I as well. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. Amen. In that judgment, you know what God well, you know what we're gonna get judged for? Not for salvation, it's not about going to heaven or going to hell. Anybody at the judgment seat of Christ is already gonna go to heaven. Amen. At that judgment, you and I will be judged for what we did with what God gave us. Amen. When God made it rain in your field, when God kept the disease from your farm. God allowed the cattle to be fat in your land. God says, I gave you those resources. And he's going to judge you and I for what was done in our bodies. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Let me just share a couple verses with you. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 13. You're there in Hebrews 9. Look at Hebrews 4, 13. There's a day of judgment coming for all. Isn't that a crazy thought? Think about this. Every human being, saved or unsaved, Christian or non-Christian, Muslim, Hindu, it doesn't matter. Any human being that's ever lived on this earth has an appointment. There's a calendar in heaven and it has an appointment with a day where every single human being will meet with God. You will meet with God. I will meet with God. And it will be a personal judgment. It will not be done collectively. I'm sorry, I will not be there as your pastor. And you will not be there as my church people. Your wife will not be there. Your husband will not be there. Your parents will not be there. Your children will not be there. It will be you and God. Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God is watching you. God knows everything about you. There neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. There's nobody that he does not see. Maybe your wife didn't see it. Maybe your parents didn't see it. But God saw it. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You say, well, what do we do? What do we do with this idea that there is a set day of judgment for all people to meet God, either go to the great white throne or the judgment seat of Christ? What do we do with that? Well, go to Hebrews chapter 10. I would advise that you take the advice of Amos the prophet. Prepare to meet thy God. Hebrews 10 and verse 31, notice what the Bible says, Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know that every single human being, every single human being should spend their lives preparing to meet the God that gave them life. Pastor, what do you think I should do with my life? I think you should do with your life what every other Christian, every other person in this world should do with their life. Every human being, I believe, I agree with Amos, should spend their lives preparing to meet their God. Amos chapter 4, look at verse 13, we'll finish up. Amos chapter 4, 13. You say, how do unbelievers prepare to meet their God? They get saved. How do believers prepare to meet their God? They get right with God. They use the resources that God has given them, the health and the wealth, the treasures and the talents, the time and the ability, the resources, and they use them for the glory of God. Why? Because every single one of us ought to spend every day of our lives preparing to meet our God. Amos 4.12, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Look at verse 13. For lo, he that formeth the mountains. Consider this. Consider this. About the day that you meet God. Not when your friend or your buddy or your neighbor, when you meet God. Because you have a day set to meet with God. And as it is appointed unto men, once to die. But after this, the judgment. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind. Who am I going to meet? You're going to meet the one who formed the mountains. You're going to meet the one that created the winds. For he that formeth the mountains and createth the winds and declareth unto man what is his thought. Think about that. You don't, you're not going to have to speak at this judgment. God is going to declare to you what your thoughts are. He knows everything about you. That maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high place of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So how should I spend tomorrow preparing to meet thy God? What about the next day preparing to meet thy God? What about when I decide what job I'm going to take? If I'm going to take a job that's going to pull me away from church? Maybe you ought to consider that you ought to prepare to meet thy God. And that it is the God that gives you the ability to work. When you wake up tomorrow and you ask yourself, should I read the Bible today? I Nine chapters of thing, things over, but maybe, should I read the Bible or should I just go on Facebook? You ought to have this thought. I need to prepare to meet my God. Prepare. To meet thy God is what every person should spend their lives doing. We should all spend our lives preparing to meet the God that gave us life. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this chapter. They say it's archaic. Sounds pretty up-to-date to me. There are Christians in bars right now saying... Bring and let us drink. They should be preparing to meet their God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd help us to realize that we've been given a great opportunity. We've been given the oracles of God. We've been given freedom in this country to preach the gospel, to go door to door. Help us to prepare to meet our God. I pray that you would help us to live with judgment in mind, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, to serve God, to love God, to live for God with all our might. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to have Brother RJ come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to give you a couple of